All right, this week is the deity of Christ. The first week uh, we looked at, hey, here's the kind of history of thought in the West as it relates to Jesus. And uh, we took some time looking at that just because we, none of us were born in a vacuum. We've all been influenced by our culture and the history of thought that shaped our culture and uh, particularly how our culture has thought about Christ. And then we kind of looked at just some, just very quickly, some basic hermeneutical principles, uh, interpretation of the Bible principles, which we then carried over to week two. And then we spent a good bit of week two talking about the storyline of Scripture. And uh, we, we looked at uh, threefold horizon interpretation, textual epochal canonical horizons, or close, continuing, complete, or whatever it is uh, for the non-scholarly uh, emphasis, whatever, the, I can't remember what they're called, what, what Wellam calls them in that book, yeah. Um, it's hard to call them something different. Um, <clears throat> and as we were looking at the Old Testament uh, story storyline last week, you'll remember that we talked about how uh, ultimately the, Jesus and the apostles, when arguing for, for Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, they only had the Old Testament. And, and, and that's what they argued for, from, and uh, that's where the apostles and uh, Jesus are saying the time's fulfilled. Uh, what What was prophesied and what uh, everything in the Old Covenant, Old Testament pointed to has now found its fulfillment in Christ. And um, we saw that there were helpful ways in which to look at the storyline, and one, of the, one way in which we uh, saw was helpful is seeing the storyline of Scripture in light of creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Uh, so we looked at creation, we looked at Adam, we saw a lot of things that are carrying forward and giving greater clarity in the progressive revelation of Scripture, um, which we, we talked about what that is. And we saw how the rest of the Old Testament picks up these ideas after the fall and how God is, is making it clear from Genesis 3 on He, he is going to save His people. And there's greater and greater clarity over time as to how God is going to do that. But he made it clear uh, that it, certainly at the very beginning in Genesis 3, that it's going to be through a son. And that's given greater clarity through Abraham. And even more clarity through Israel. And then even greater clarity through God's covenant with David. And so by the time of the prophets who are after David, there is a lot of specificity as to who this future Messiah is going to be, where he's going to come from. And we talked about how the Old Testament uh, saints would have seen the story uh, of redemption uh, with creation and then the fall and then in this period between the fall and the coming of the, of the Messiah, it was the, the present age. And here the Messiah comes, 
and the Messiah through, uh, again, of course, o- over the progression of the story um, and given pro- the greatest clarity in post-Davidic Israel through the prophets, we see that the Messiah is identified actually with Yahweh himself and the king. So we know it's Yahweh, king, Messiah who's coming, and then he's going to come, and then he's going to enact the age to come with uh, new creation and salvation and rest and, and all, all these realities that the Old Testament is pointing for, uh, towards. And we, I think we talked about it the first week. I know that we talked about it last week. And we see probably best in the book of Isaiah with Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11 where the uh, prophet is talking about the Savior to come, who's going to be a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and he's going to be the one who brings about the new creation where the wolf will lie down with the lamb. Uh, and all of these th- all the curse of sin is going to be undone. And Isaiah sees that as like one event, and that's kind of Old Testament expectation. Is one event. Messiah is going to come. Everything's undone. Salvation uh, in this future age to come. Uh, but when we get to the New Testament, what what we see is uh, what what the prophets and Old Testament saints saw as one event uh, was was really two events, and they're just looking at it from this perspective. And so what we have here is we have first event is cross, second event is uh, second coming. And here, from that point on, age to come. So this, this right here, Old Testament. Right here, New Testament understanding. Okay, so when we, when we think about the storyline of Scripture in light of how the New Testament saints and apostles understood it and what we are currently living in if we see the storyline of scripture creation fall we see old testament era we see messiah comes new creation has begun And we see a second coming. So we see in the cross of Jesus, we see Yahweh and the king united in the same person. What some Israelites actually thought that there was going to be a Davidic king who comes and a high priest who comes. And the Messiah is going to be viewed um, through the work of two people. New Testament teaching is clearly, it's united in one person. He is the fulfillment of all things, Jesus Christ. And so we see the age to come here. And again, that's new creation. Just given greater clarity here. Uh, And here is where we live.
the present age, last days. And so we're in this time between the first and the second coming. And when he comes again, it'll be the full enactment. Old creation will stop. New creation in its fullness will be consummated. And that's what we will enjoy forever. Uh, this is where we're going to have second coming, resurrection of the dead. First coming, we talked about it last week. The Old Testament makes it clear. What first has to be dealt with is sin. Sin has to be dealt with if we're going to enjoy any of the age to come benefits. Okay, so we're right here. All of us are right here. That's me. That's Timothy. That's Robin. Right there. We're all happily in the present age saying, come Lord Jesus. Now, now we understand uh, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises and patterns, right? One of those being a temple, we understand that it's not width. It's only width and length. There, there's no height because you don't stack people on top of one another like that, right? Kind of like you would with bricks, you know? You don't, you don't stack people. So the new temple is like a sea of people. Right? So this is Robin and this is Chandler, and it just doesn't work, right? It, do, it just doesn't work. Doesn't work. Okay. All right. So with all of this, with all of this, what we see is that the New Testament focus uh, is that it's, it's Christocentric and it's Christotelic. Okay? Those are the, those are the first two blanks all right so christocentric okay so christocentric christotelic it's all centered around jesus everything centered around him all of this everything centered around him from creation to new creation Christ is the center of the story. He's the hero. Christotelic is communicating a similar idea, but slightly different in that Old Testament expectations have found their fulfillment in Christ. So telos in the Greek is end or goal or fulfillment. Okay, so Christotelic is that Christ is the end. He's the fulfillment. He's the, the, uh, the aim or goal to which all of Old Testament expectation and anticipation is pointing. And so when we think about the deity of Christ, we're, we're going to be certainly looking at the New Testament, but we've, we've got to understand that Old Testament expectation here um, is that when looking at the deity of the Son, we've got to remember that the way that the Old Testament presents this future Messiah, as we talked about last week, God, so ugly, um, is that it is Yahweh who is going to save his people. I mean, just through the prophets, he says, false shepherds, terrible, misleading people, I'm going to come and save my people myself. We, fer we clearly see that in Genesis 15 with Abraham. We, we start to see like first glimpses of, wait a minute, how can God... How can God take curses upon himself? 
uh, well, again, given greater clarity, and we see that he does, in fact, do that at the cross of Christ. But it's not just Yahweh. We need a representative. Uh, we need the Davidic king to come and to usher in God's promised kingdom. So with, with Old, expecta- uh, Old Testament expectation clearly being that he's a man, but then there's even greater like clarity of like, wait a minute, he's, all of a sudden he's a divine figure. Because he's like the ancient of days, the son of man. He, he's the everlasting father, the prince of peace, mighty God in Isaiah 9. And <clears throat> when, we, when we come to uh, the Gospels, we, we need to understand that the deity of Christ is grounded upon or established by three important things that you'll see, 2-1, two, 2-2, two, two, and 2-3. Two, uh, first, it, what we discussed last week is uh, the Bible storyline. So when you get to Matthew 1, Matthew, John, uh, Matthew Mark, Luke, and John are not creating something out of thin air. This, this has been anticipated that Yahweh is going to come. This is not new. So the Bible's own storyline is pointing forward to the deity of Christ. Secondly, we're, we're going to see that the, pat, the pattern of New Testament Christology, uh, son, sonship, uh, son of God, Lord. So son and Lord. These heavily, um, or these terms that are heavily packed with Old Testament meaning. Like they're just... Uh, thick with meaning, and it's, it's intended to be a little bit of a shock that you see Jesus is repli- repeatedly referred to, uh, referred to as kurios or Lord in the Greek because that's, that's God's name. I mean, that, that's probably the most common uh, title of Jesus in the New Testament is Lord, and that's, that's assigned to him. Old Testament, it was Yahweh. So there, there's, there's something serious happening. But then we're getting greater clarity on like, oh, 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 what does it mean to be the son? It's not just the Adamic son, like image of God, son of God. Now we're having even greater clarity from this ancient Near Eastern context and idea of the son of God being the king. This is, the, this is the eternal Son of God that's being uh, clearly portrayed in the, the gospel accounts. So like Son, Lord uh, language is informing our, our Christology. That's 2-2. Two, two. Uh, and then 2-3, uh, Christ's deity is, is established by the self-identity of Jesus. I mean, who does he say that he is? And so when we talk about self, the self-identity of Jesus, uh, what we are not talking about that uh, can, can be picked up wrongly and then taken in all kinds of wrong ways is we don't mean self-consciousness, okay? So it's the self-identity of Jesus, not self-consciousness. Well, why do we say that? Because we can't get into the consciousness of Jesus. 
Just like when we read a book, we're not, kind, we're not trying to get into the consciousness of the author. That's not where we find the meaning. The meaning is in the text itself. What are the words? What are the actions of the author? That is communicating meaning. That is how we understand what somebody intends. Not trying to somehow get into somebody's mind. So it's not the self-consciousness of Jesus, but his own self-identity, which he makes very clear. And that's with, with self-identity, what I want to talk about is, uh, 232, is examining the text of Scripture. So when, we, when we're looking at the text of Scripture itself, we see the self-identity of Jesus in the words of Jesus, the acts of Jesus, and the testimony of the apostles. So, in terms of Jesus' identity, two examples, Mark 6, and, and we've, we've gone through this um, in preaching it. I believe it was Pastor Drew who preached this text. Mark 6, 45-52, where Jesus walks on the water. Uh, and you, you will remember... Uh, that he, he tells his disciples to get in the boat, go, have, go ahead and uh, get on over there, and uh, I'm going to pray, and I will catch up to you. And wind is against the disciples that are in the boat, and uh, late into the evening, uh, picking up in verse 48, uh, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, uh, he, Jesus, came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. Now, uh, unfortunately with the, with the English you don't really see it uh, as clearly, uh, but there are at least three things going on in that text, two of them from Exodus, one of them from the book of Job, uh, and that is, one, uh, in the book of Job, it is said that it is the Lord who tramples upon the waters. He is the one who tramples upon the waves. All right, so we have this Old Testament expectation there. Uh, and then you will remember from Exodus 33, after the golden calf incident, where Moses is saying, show me your glory, Lord, and the Lord's like, I can't do that, you're going to die. Uh, but I will put you in the cleft of this rock, and I'm going to cover you with my hand, and I will pass by you, and you'll see my back. Uh, and so Mark intentionally puts in here, he's walking upon the sea, he meant to pass by them. And so if that were it, it'd be like, oh, okay, like, yeah, we could, you know, I guess that, that's, that's similar to Exodus 33. But then there's the self-identity of Jesus uh, with his response, he says, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Okay, now in the Greek, it is take heart, ego a me, uh, do not be afraid. And uh, ego a me, uh, 
Ego, they don't have dots. Uh, ego imi. Uh, this already says, this already says I am right here. So what this says is I, I am. So ego in me is emphatic. Okay. So what he is saying is, Hey, take heart. I am. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Um, ego in me. Now, where, where would you remember there being somebody saying I am? Bernie Bush, Exodus 3, right? Who, who shall I say sent me? I am who I am. Tell them that I am sent me. Um, and so we see just in the, in, the, in the one walking upon the ways, we, three, we see three different indicators of Yahweh. We see him walking upon the waves. We see him passing by his people. And we see him identifying himself as I am. Uh, now, that's not the only time, because then we could be like, well, yeah, I, uh, maybe, maybe. Well, Jesus makes it really, really clear, uh, and everybody understands what he's saying in John 8. Um, the, the Jews are saying, like, uh, you know, aren't we right to say that, like, you're a Samaritan, you got a demon? I mean, as if the guy would, if he truly was a Samaritan and had a demon, he'd be like, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. And then this is where I think you can start to understand like what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is when you're assigning to the Son of God demonic activity. Uh, Jesus answers, I don't have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he's the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus is like, I'm glad you asked. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you said, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty. And you have seen Abraham? Jesus, Jesus said to them, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, Ego me. Before, before Abraham was, I am. And if there was any question as to what the uh, Jews thought about that, in his claim, so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So the Jews understood that in John 8, Jesus is saying, I know exactly what Abraham was like and what he looked forward to. Do you know why? Because I'm Yahweh. I'm Yahweh in the flesh. And they pick up stones to stone him. Uh, but it is not yet his time. Can you imagine talking to this, this, the, the incarnate Son of God in that way? I mean, just the, just the depths of unbelief. And of course, that would have been us, apart from the grace of the Lord. So we see I am, again, ego e me, at least two times. 
Uh, I think there, there's more. I can't remember off the top of my head how many times there are, but there are more than that. Uh, we see, we see Jesus' self-identity. Um, <clears throat> we, we see it in the testimony of the apostles. We'll look, we'll, let's look at three, um, three passages just real quick. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And I'll read that. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though, we, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's, that's a clear affirmation of the deity of Christ. But emptied himself. Now that's the question of how does he empty himself? What, is, what does he mean by kenosis there? But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, curios, to the glory of God the Father." Uh, you, you see Psalm 2, Psalm 110, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42, all the way through chapter 66. Uh, Psalm 89, with the Davidic king being the king who is preeminent over all kings. You see Old Testament indications uh, that this Davidic king is tied up with Yahweh himself. And in Philippians 2, you see not only did he not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, though he was in the form of God, he humbled himself by taking upon flesh and humbled himself even further to the point of death, even death on a cross. But therefore, God has highly exalted him. How did he exalt him? He put him on David's throne. And it's not David's throne over like some small geographic area in the Middle East. He is now the exalted and ascended king of the universe. So Philippians 2, just again, that's Paul. Uh, Colossians, Colossians 1 and 2, he is, uh, I'll just read sections from it, he is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15, the firstborn of all creation. Now does that mean firstborn as in first created being? No, that's Arianism and... Today is the modern, the modern iteration of Arianism is Jehovah's Witnesses. That's right. Firstborn of all creation. What does it mean to be firstborn? It's not talking about time, but rather preeminence, inheritance language. He is preeminent. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. By him. By him all things were created. So when you look at Genesis 1 and 2 and it says, you know, God spoke, let there be light. Paul is saying, yeah, that was the Son. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That, that in him is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That being held together is actually in the perfect tense there. And so it's not just he did it one time, but it's past action with continual results. Uh, he has held all things together. 
and he's still doing it today. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Again, that is timing and preeminence. Because 1 Corinthians 15, his, his resurrection is the first fruits of our resurrection. Like, it's the first blossom that we see. <gasps> Resurrections are coming. They're about to pop out all over this resurrection, new creation tree. Because Jesus' Jesus's resurrection has occurred. Uh, Colossians 2. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. How, how are you to receive Christ Jesus? Well, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Okay, well, how am I supposed to rightly accord him and to take my thoughts captive? Verse 9, Colossians 2. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Christ is divine. Colossians 1 and 2. Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1. My goodness. If there is, if there is another chapter that, of the Bible, particularly the New Testament, that, that fills out prophet, priest, and king, Davidic king, Yahweh in the flesh, better than Hebrews 1, or more clearly than Hebrews 1, I don't know it. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. I've already erased it, but again, fathers and prophets who spoke... They didn't have, their revelation wasn't less inspired. Their, their revelation was just as inspired, but it was pointing to Jesus, Christotelic. Jesus comes, and he is the word made flesh. But in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Heir of all things, that sonship language. So we're thinking... We're thinking Adam, we're thinking David, through whom also he created the world. Again, Colossians, okay? So the Son is the agent of creation. God the Father speaks the Word, and the Word by the Spirit is active in creation, and things come to be. Um, <clears throat> he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is divine. Exact imprint, not lesser imprint, not kind of imprint, not mostly imprint, like 99% with 1%, uh, not so much. 100% exact imprint of his nature, God's nature. And he, the Son, upholds the universe by the word of his power. So when you think about Colossians 1, where he has held all things together... And or it says he's created all things and he has held all things together since that point in at, when space-time began at creation. And then Hebrews 1, he created, all, he created the world, he's the agent, and he upholds the universe by, by the word of his power, that, that governance uh, in, his, in, in providence, uh, sovereign governance over the world. We have to understand that as we're reading the Gospels, and we see baby Jesus being born, 
we have to understand that that little son who was being nursed by his mother, Mary, was also sustaining her atoms by the word of his power. So he was being held even as he was holding all things together. And if he stopped holding all things together, then we'd have the reverse Big Bang. Everything would just disappear. And so, you know, wrap your head around that. He upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins. Okay? Yahweh, king, priest, Psalm 110. After making purification for sins, after he has taken care of our major problem in his first coming, what has he done now? As a result of that, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What is that? That's the Vedic son. That's the king. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And this idea of like, I'm going to make your name great started with Abraham. And so we're, we're seeing like the son has the greatest of all the names. God made his name superior and more excellent, even than the angels who mediated the old covenant. And so if there are any questions there, it continues. Which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? What psalm is that? Psalm 2. Psalm 2, who wrote Psalm 2? David, do you think that's, in, you think that's important? Yes. yes, the Davidic king writing the psalm about the son who is going to rule with an iron scepter and is identified by Yahweh as you are my son, today I have begotten you. And this is how we start to understand differences between the persons of the Trinity in who he is ad intra, rather than how he has worked in creation, three persons, ad extra. Ad intra, di distinction between the Father and the Son is that the Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten. And so that's how part of the way we know there's a distinction between the Father and the Son. There are two persons there. Um, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a Father, and he shall be to me a Son. 2 Samuel 7.14, Davidic Covenant. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Who would the Lord ever allow anyone to be worshipped other than him? So when we, yes, so when we think about image of God and we think about like, hey, don't make any graven images in the Ten Commandments. Why? Well, in large part, God already has images, and they're all over the world. They're called people. And what is the fulfillment of, of the law? Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. That second commandment has found its fulfillment. You don't make any graven images. Why? Because I have a son, and he is, he is the image of the invisible God, and he's coming when I send him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire. He makes his ministers, people who minister on his behalf. Uh, they serve, the sun rules. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Again, Davidic son, Psalm 2. You have a scepter to rule all the kings in the world. 
You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions. And then again, you, Lord, lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. <laughs> like the, the world and the entire universe is one day going to wear out like a garment. Like all my Clemson hoodies that I've worn way too long that are just developing holes, you know, and I get Julia to continually sew them up. And this, this keeps happening, but at the end of the day, like one day, our clothing is just going to wear out. And the psalmist says the same thing. That's exactly what's going to happen with creation. He's going to roll it up one day, just like a towel, like a garment that's going to be worn out. And why is he going to do that? Because he's going to give a new creation, one that's going to reign uh, and be sustained forever. Uh, by his word you are the same your years will have no end we have clear glimpses even in the psalms of the eternality the eternal pre-existence of the son okay so philippians colossians hebrews all right uh we also see in terms of divine status we see we see uh status and we see functions Okay, that are pointing to Christ being uh, divine. So we'll start with status. Uh, so first in insert uh, two four in relation, we see that that uh, the Son has a divine status that is claimed in relation to God the Father. All right, I already read Colossians two nine. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells. And so, in relation to God the Father, we're going to get to this with uh, Chalcedon. Uh, but we're going to see a distinction between homoousius Homoousius, okay? The only difference being a diphthong, two vowels that form a syllable. This, you're orthodox. This, you're a heretic. So what does this mean? And Chalcedon... This was the historic view that was confirmed at Chalcedon in uh, 451, if I'm not mistaken, meaning same, same nature. Homoousius, similar, but not the same. Who argued for this? All the Orthodox Christians. Who argued for this? The Arians. Ancient Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't know that they went around knocking on doors <laughs> at the time. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know if they had a Watchtower magazine or anything like that back then. Uh, 
same, similar. So divine status in relation to God the Father. So in Colossians 2, 9, in relation to, to God the Father, we see that 2, 4, 1, Jesus, possess, Jesus possesses divine attributes. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells. Okay, we saw that in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Also, he emptied himself, but he didn't empty himself of divine attributes. Okay, he was in the form of God. They shared in everything. So, Jesus possesses divine attributes. Um, <clears throat> and that is the case, like, Jesus is omniscient. Uh, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know all things. Um, when they're trying to select a new, new disciple to replace Judas, Lord, you know. You know all things. You know who needs to replace Judas. Omnipresent. See that in Ephesians 4.10. Ephesians 4.10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Immutability. Hebrews 13.8. Do we know what immutability means? You know what mutable means. When something is mutable, it means that it can change. Immutability is that he does not change. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. In relation to God the Father, Jesus was sinless. He was holy. That relationship was never, never uh, at risk. Never severed. Uh, secondly, Jesus e exists eternally. We saw uh, texts that imply that. Um, you see in John twelve forty one. John twelve forty one. We got a lot of texts. John twelve forty one. Um, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. That's not right. Oh, no, Isaiah 6. That's what he's pointing to. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple above him, stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew and called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah is speaking of these things as he is talking about the sun. We, we have already talked about uh, different passages of scripture that talk about Jesus being the one, the son being the agent of creation. I was with the father in the beginning. <clears throat> All right, Jesus is equal in dignity to the father, to God the father. John 5. 
Again, self-identification. John 5, 22 to 23. For the Father judges no one's, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus is equal in dignity. All right, Jesus is universally supreme, 244. Jesus is universally supreme. I mean, it's hard to read the book of Revelation and not see that. Colossians 1, Ephesians 1. The New Testament gives us the picture, clear picture, that Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. He is the Word, who was God and is God, who's come into the world. Uh, Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. He is the final and fullness of God's revelation that everything in the Old Testament pointed towards. 2, 4, 6. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. So in the Old Testament, the Lord is presented as the God of truth. And the New Testament also claims this for Jesus in John 1, John 6, John 15. 245 is Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. Yes, uh, Jesus is the embodiment of truth. Uh, John 1, 9, John 6, 32 to 33, and John 15, 1 and 4. Mm-hmm. New Testament argues Jesus was God's fully accredited agent, his appointed agent. New Testament also argues that um, <clears throat> what he taught about God was trustworthy and corresponded exactly with what the Father, uh, who the Father is and what the Father has done. Jesus is the truth, John 14, 6. Okay, so his, his state, we, we understand, we see the deity of Christ, deity of the Son, in relation to God the Father. We also, 2, 5, see it in relation to humanity. Okay, Jesus is, uh, is the recipient, or Jesus receives praise and worship. He does not turn it away. And every Jew would have had on their hearts and minds and on their lips every day Deuteronomy 6. Lord our God is one. One God. And he alone is the object of worship. No graven images. No other idols. No other false gods. God, Yahweh, and Yahweh alone. And yet... Jesus never turns away worship, never turns away praise. And we see, I mean, we certainly see that clearly with the ascended and glorified Jesus before the Apostle John, near the end of John's life in Revelation 1. Like John sees the glorified Jesus, who he loved, and who loved John all the days of his ministry, They knew each other well. 
And John saw him post-resurrection. John has ministered on his behalf for decades uh, after Jesus' ascension. And the glorified Jesus appears to John. And John's reaction is that he falls down as if he's dead. He is overwhelmed with the glory of the Son. So the Son has to put his hand on him and say, Hey, don't worry. It's me. I'm, I'm the first and the last. The, the Alpha and the Omega. The one who died and yet I live. I need you to write some stuff and give it to the churches. Yes, the B A yeah, B A V. Yes. So in relation to humanity, Jesus receives praise and worship, never turns it away. And you you see, like the the Pharisees and the Jews are like, what? They're like, you you need to tell them to stop. But if they stopped, the rocks would cry out. Uh, Jesus, 252, Jesus uh, is addressed in prayer. Or, you know, in relation to humanity, Jesus addressed in prayer. Uh, We see this with Stephen in Acts 7. Lord, I, 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 I see the heavens open and the Son of God seated at the right hand. Lord, in, into your hands I commit my spirit. Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's normal to address the Father in prayer through the Son by the Spirit. That's the typical pattern, Trinitarian prayer. But there are, there are instances in the New Testament where, Je- where Jesus is directly addressed in prayer by Christians. Acts 1, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 16, Revelation 22. If Jesus is addressed in prayer, then he's divine. Jesus, 253. Jesus equals object of saving faith. He is the object. Old Testament repeatedly proclaimed salvation comes from the Lord salvation is from the Lord salvation is of the Lord but when we turn to the New Testament it's Jesus Jesus who's the object of our faith in the New Testament God himself is only referred to as the object of our faith 12 times in the New Testament Because Jesus is referred to as the object of our faith like 13 billion times. Jesus does not displace the Father. But the Son meets us. Sent by the Father, by the Spirit. And that's how God meets us in salvation. Jesus, 254, Jesus is joint, the joint source of blessing. Like, you, you see this often with Paul in his openings. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because peace and blessing come from God and God. God the Father, God the Son. Standard, standard source of blessing. Again, 
Father and Son, jointly together, single source, divine grace and peace. God and God, God the Father and God the Son, united. Uh, 255, Jesus equals the object of doxologies. 2 Timothy 4, 2 Peter 3, Revelation 1, Revelation 5, the Lamb. So it's clear that Jesus is viewed by the New Testament as having equal status with God the Father. And he is relating to humanity as the one who receives praise and worship, as the one who is addressed in prayer, as the one who is the object of saving faith, as the, as the source with God the Father of humanity's blessing. And he is the object of doxologies. All right, so 2.6... We move from, from state to functions, okay? So it's not just like God in relation to God the Son in relation to the Father. It's not just God the Son in relation to humanity. It's also what does Jesus do in terms of his self-identification. So 2.6, divine functions. Divine functions. We are going to fill out all these blanks. So help me. Divine functions. All right, so we see the first divine function in relation to the universe. Universe, mm-hmm. And in terms of the universe, he's the creator, and he's the sustainer. He creates the universe. He sustains the universe by the word of his power. We see his divine functions in regard to humanity. We see, with regard to humanity, that Jesus alone is the one who gives authoritative teaching and healing. Like, man, he's not at all like the scribes or Pharisees. Man, this guy is teaching as one who has authority. And Matthew, Matthew helps us to see this. With an inclusio, bookends, Matthew 4, 23 to, uh, yeah, 23 is fine. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. What is he doing? He's going everywhere, teaching and healing. And what does Matthew 4, from that point on, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 consist of? He is teaching with authority, and he is healing, as only God can heal. And what does he say about the law? I'm the fulfillment of the law. The law points to me. But then at the end of uh, that inclusio, that bookend, Matthew 9, 35, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Matthew's wanting you to see, boom, teaching and healing, teaching and healing. What does that mean? And he is, he is the divine son. He is the divine son. 
Uh, only, only the sun can come in and like heal on the Sabbath and say like, Man, the Sabbath points to me. I mean, I can heal on the Sabbath. Sabbath wasn't created for men to serve it. Sabbath was created for it to serve men. To, to, to give a glimpse of the rest that I would provide. So no, God is always working, including on his created Sabbath. And I'm working too. Uh, 2622. Uh, the son, what does he do? Pours out the spirit. I've got to go so I can send the helper. Acts 1, I've got, I've, got, I've got to leave you guys. It is better if I leave you so I can give you the helper. Pentecost, Acts 2, boom. The church is born. The new covenant community comes into existence. And it's consummated at Pentecost. It pours out the Spirit. And this is in fulfillment of Joel 2. Peter says that in Acts 2. And, and on that day, in these last days, I'll pour out my Spirit upon old and young, men and women, prophesy, even your servants and slaves, men and women will prophesy. Which, of course, we see in the book of Acts. We covered that in 1 Corinthians 11. There's a prophecy in the local church there. We've got to then figure out, okay, what does that mean today? Is it continuing? I've already made it clear that I think it's finished. But it is Jesus pouring out the Spirit that does these things that then gives us spiritual gifts. It's because Jesus has gone and given us a spirit that we're now all indwelt by the spirit and all now have gifts of the spirit for the common good. Jesus raises the dead. I mean, how many kids did he raise from the dead? Lazarus, come on out. Oh, he's going to stink. Stop it. I am the resurrection and the life. Um, Jesus grants salvation, eternal life. Two six two three is he raises the dead. 2624, he grants salvation slash eternal life. And how does he do that? Because Jesus forgives sins. Who can, who can forgive except God alone? And he's like, well, I mean, well, well, what's easier? What's easier? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? But just for you, just so you know that I have the, the authority to forgive sins, all right, take up your mat and walk. Guy pops up and skips out of there. Full forgiveness of sins. Jesus forgives. Only God can forgive. They were right to say that. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus is like, yes. 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 Jesus forgives sins. Grant salvation and eternal life. Uh, Jesus, you certainly see it in the book of Revelation. Jesus 2625 exercises judgment. He exercises judgment. The lamb who is the lion. The lion who is the lamb. The Jesus who came in order to bear God's judgment for his people. 
has been given the authority to judge by the Father. We read that in John 5. He exercises judgment, and judgment starts with the household of God. And then it moves to the world. All right, 2.7. We also see it uh, in relation to Jesus and Yahweh. The old covenant name for the Lord. Now we, we saw that, I, I don't have any more than that because we've already talked about ego and me. I am, I am, I am, I am. Jesus identifies himself with Yahweh. That is, that is his status and then he functions as Yahweh in the New Testament. He possesses the character, the holiness. He receives the worship. He does the creative work. He supplies the salvation. He meets out the judgment. He has secured the triumph of Yahweh. All right. Jesus and Yahweh, one and the same. Just given greater clarity and this progressive revelation that it's not just one God, one person, one nature. No, Yahweh has revealed himself as he has always eternally existed as one God existing eternally in three persons sharing one divine nature. And we'll have to talk a little bit about that when we get to like Chalcedon. We start talking about person, nature distinctions, all this good stuff. As, as the early church, like us, are having to grapple and wrestle with all of these truths that are clearly being taught in the Scriptures from Old Testament and New Testament, how can God be both God and man? How can Jesus be divine and human? How can He be perfect, and bare sin of his people. How are all these things? And so we're grappling with the scriptures, trying to maintain the tension that scripture gives, trying to nuance as scripture nuances. Nuance is not very popular these days. Uh, everybody wants very black and white, and it's, it's often much more nuanced. Very black and white, Jesus is God. Nuance, well, now we've got to talk about person, nation, person, Nature distinctions, we've got to talk about uh, communication of attributes, hypostatic union, how the natures exist, and perichoresis, all these kinds of different things that the church has kind of come up with over the past 2,000 years to explain clear biblical truths. All right, 2.8, we see divine title, the divine title used of Jesus. What is that divine title? Theos. Theos. God. 
theta. Theta is Trans transliteration, theos, right here, theos. When you have a sigma on the end of a word, it's the long swoopy, not the, not the, not this. So Jesus himself is referred to as Theos, God, God. How many times? At least seven times. At least seven times. Jesus is referred to as Theos, God. Theos, Old Testament. I mean, the one God, Jesus is ascribed that title. John 1. John 1. In the beginning was the Word. He was a, that's right. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses want you to say, oh, no, there's something in the Greek. There's, not, there's, not, there's something in the Greek there. Uh, and so it actually is supposed to be translated, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They don't understand Greek grammar. There's a grammar, a Greek grammar rule called Colwell's Rule that dictates how, in certain constr syntactical constructions, how you were supposed to translate it. And not a, but a the. All right, we're not going to get into that because we are not in the seminary. Uh, John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. That's the word. He has made him known. John 20. Anybody remember? This is, this is a really, really good one. Don't turn there. Don't turn there. Can you remember it? Can you remember it? John 20. No? Uh-uh. It's after, it's after the cross. It's after the resurrection. No. He appears to the disciples. No, that's Luke 24. Yes. No. Thomas. I will not believe it unless I put my hands in his hands and in his side. And Jesus appears and says, go ahead. And, and Thomas's right response, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And Jesus says, have you, and Jesus, is, Jesus says this, hey, hear this, hear this saint, hear this good news for you. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. That's us. Theos is talking about us when he says that. He says, blessing is coming to the people who have not seen me and yet have believed me. He's talking about you.
Romans 9, 5. I'm going to give you, so there's John 1, 1 and 2, and then verse 18. John 20, verse 28. Romans 9, 5. I want you guys to be prepared when somebody rings your doorbell and knocks on your door to welcome them in and then uh, convince them and persuade them to believe the gospel. Contend for the faith and win sinners out of falsehood. Romans 9.5 Romans 9, To them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. Yes. Well, their, their translation of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. It's just Book of Mormon is more important. Because, again, it's progressive revelation, and it's like, but it's progressive revelation in that it's like, all that old stuff is good, but it's not as good as this. And we're saying, no, Old Testament is just as good as New Testament. There's just greater clarity. Uh, fulfillment. Uh, Titus 2. Yeah, so that's where they insert a God. And that, and you're like, Jehovah's, no, Jehovah's, Jehovah's, Jehovah's Witness come to my house, and I'm like breaking out the Greek Bible. You know, Greek New Testament. You're like... And put on my huge uh, black sunglasses or black glasses with a little white tape in the middle. Like, excuse me, sorry. No, actual, actually, it says this. Uh, Titus 2, verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1, 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then Hebrews 1, 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. All right. Four different New Testament authors. John does it three times, Paul does it twice, Peter does it one time, and the author of Hebrew does it one time. Four different New Testament authors saying all the same thing, Jesus is God. That is the consistent affirmation of the church all throughout the first century and for the past 1900 years. Uh, Why is this title not used more often? Uh, Theos is actually used uh, about 1,300 times uh, in the New Testament and only seven times in reference to Jesus because Theos typically is referring to God the Father. God the Father and just because y'all love seeing the Greek without any translation or transliteration or translation... God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. I am? That's what it is. 
Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Transliterated, transliterated. All, typically in English, the all caps is Yahweh. Yeah. I mean, there's Elohim, there's Lord, there's Jehovah, there's Yahweh. And in the English, it's almost always just Lord or God. Yes. Kyrios can be, can be like the Lord of a region. Uh, but in the New Testament, it because it's used in the Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, referring to God, the Lord, it is almost exclusively ascribed to Jesus. It, yeah, which which Hebrew word goes over to Kyrios? Uh, I'd ha I'd have to look because I don't know if it's like the catch-all. Kyrios and Theos are now the catch-all for all of the Hebrew terms because there are a lot of Hebrew terms, and only there's Theos, there's Kyrios. I can't think. Of, I mean, there there very well may be, but I can't think of any other Greek terms that refer to God, except for these two. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's clear it's clear in context that it is not referring to a, a, a regional lord. No, no, because it has a, there's a, there's a different word for king, Basileus. Um, but in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, and then verses 4 and 5, um, it's, it's verse 4, um, manifest, uh, there are a variety of gifts, but the same pneuma, spirit, um, and there are uh, different, I think it's different ministries. Yeah, different ministries, uh, but the same curios, Lord. Uh, and there are different, American, Italian. Um, I can't remember that word. Oh, activities. There are different activities, but the same theos, the same God. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians 12, as I was making the point on Sunday, 
is clearly Trinitarian. Spirit, Lord, Theos. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are actively involved in gifting you. Spirit gives you the gift. Uh, Jesus gives you the ministry and the service. And the Father is the one, you're doing it for me, the activity. You're accomplishing it for me. But anyway, so I, I, w- I would argue, and, and, I, and I think that this is, I think this is a vast majority of uh, the church historically, is that we maintain distinctions between Theos and Kyrios, God and Lord, in order to make personal distinctions between the Father and the Son in Trinitarian uh, relations. So no confusion, personal distinctions. These are two different persons within the Trinity, but both are God. So New Testament clearly indicates that Jesus is the incarnate Son. He is the Theos. He is the Lord. He's obedient to the Father. That's functional, not ontological. That's a huge debate these days. Jesus is not eternally subordinated to the Father. Okay, it, 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 Historically, we referred to it as He, the Son, is functionally subordinate to the Father in the Incarnation. So Jesus, in His earthly ministry as a man, functionally, not in terms of His identity or nature, but he submitted himself unto the Father uh, in order to redeem his people. He has not been eternally subordinate. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there are no tiers of authority between the three persons of the Trinity. So, like, that's why theos, kurios, doesn't matter who you ascribe it to, which person, it's true. But these words have been used in Scripture, um, I would say, are primarily to make distinctions within the Godhead. Okay, uh, 2.9. Blank theory? No. Canonic theory. Canonic theory. So you're, I can't say anything. It's being recorded. She got it. She got it. Kanao, to, to empty. So, this is to empty. This is the Philippians 2, 7 language. He emptied himself by taking upon himself a human nature. So, canonic theory, a lot of people, are, a lot of people are, are arguing for this. When the Son became a man, he became incarnate, he gave up divine attributes. Either... He gave them up permanently so they are no longer a part of him ontologically 
or he gave them up functionally. He limited himself voluntarily during the ministry uh, that he had on earth to save us, and now he exercises them as the ascended Lord. And there is, so there's a difference between ontological and functional canonicism. Ontological would be heretical because the Son did not give up his divine attributes, uh, and that's who he is forever, not God. Uh, Nor did he voluntarily limit his divine attributes. Rather, in emptying himself, how did he empty himself? It's not by subtraction, it's by addition. He emptied himself, not by losing something, but by taking upon a human nature. That's how he emptied himself. By becoming, becoming a man. So in and through his human nature, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. He could say, as a man, only the Father knows. Like, the, when I'm going to return. In the divine nature, he knows all things. In the divine nature, he is sustaining the world by, uh, sustaining the universe by the word of his power. He's sustaining Mary as a baby. He's doing that in and through his divine nature. But in and through his human nature, he is limited because he's a man. He's truly a man. He has to be a man in order to save us. But he's a true man in that there is no sin, no fallen flesh. He's full of the Spirit. That is what we'll look like in the new creation. Jesus. So you see Jesus in the Gospels and you're like, one day that's what I'm going to look like. I'm not going to claim, you know, not theos curios, but like oneness with the Father, knowing exactly what the Father wants in prayer, knowing exactly what to do in every situation, being totally without sin, will be like him in every way. So Jesus did not give up his divine attributes. No, that is, um, that's been popular the past couple of hundred years. Okay. You cannot be a Christian if you deny Christ's deity. You cannot be. That is essential to the gospel. Essential to the storyline of scripture. You cannot be a Christian if you deny Christ's deity. You must understand the person of the Son if you are to rightly understand the work of the Son. You have to understand that He is God if you're going to understand His work. You have to understand that he is a man if you're going to understand his work. You've got to understand the person of the Son if you would rightly understand the work of the Son. So why the incarnate Son? Why the incarnate, eternal Son of God? One, he's got to bear God's wrath. And only God can bear God's wrath. Two, he's got to represent us in our humanity. So the eternal son cannot come down without taking upon himself a human nature to save us. He has to come down as the eternal son and add to himself a human nature in order to save us. To bear God's wrath, to represent us in our humanity. All right, so we literally could spend weeks and months and years looking at the deity of Christ. We have spent about an hour and 20, 25 minutes doing so. So we have not done it justice near to the, to the degree that we should, but we have at least scratched the surface. Uh, next week, we will look at the humanity of Christ. 
And when we look at the humanity of Christ uh, and the deity of Christ, the week after that, I believe, we'll start looking at, okay, we've looked at the biblical data, we've looked at what uh, biblical theological issues that are at play, uh, we will then start moving into Chalcedon and theological formulation. How can Jesus be the Son of God incarnate? How can He be God and man? How does that work? Uh, for next week, read God the Son. It's on the back. God the Son incarnate, chapter 5. That's only like 20 pages. I mean, y'all got no excuses unless you don't have the book. Unless you don't have the book. No excuses if you've got the book and you have the time to read 20 pages. Read chapter 5. That's going to go through everything that we just went through. Um, helpful resources as it relates to the deity of Christ. You see it on the back. Lots of different books. I have been heavily, heavily, heavily dependent upon Stephen Wellham and Murray Harris to give you what you got tonight. Uh, they have been very helpful in forming uh, my thoughts on the subject and every book here. I love, you want to talk about like Jesus being Yahweh, Richard Bauckham, Jesus and the God of Israel, fantastic, fantastic book. I remember reading that in seminary and it's like, holy smokes, my mind was blown. Good stuff, good stuff. Um, all right, any questions before we close? All right, let's pray.